0: section ten of an american idol this librivox recording is in the public domain recorded by mary schneider an american idol the life of carlton h parker by cornelius stratton parker chapter ten in january nineteen fifteen carl took up his teaching again in real earnest commuting to alamo every night i would have the boys in bed and a little supper all ready by the fire Then I would prowl down the road with my electric torch to meet him coming home. He would signal in the distance with his torch and I with mine. Then the walk back together, sometimes ankle-deep in mud. Then supper, making the toast over the coals, and an evening absolutely to ourselves. And never in all our lives did we ask for more joy than that. That spring we began building our own home in Berkeley, the months in alamo had made us feel that we could never bear to be in the center of things again nor for that matter could we afford a lot in the center of things so we bought high up on the berkeley hills where we could realize as much privacy as was possible and yet where our friends could reach us if they could stand the climb the love of a nest we built we were longer in that house than anywhere else two years almost to the day two years of such happiness as no other home has ever seen there around the redwood table in the living room by the window overlooking the golden gate we had the suppers that meant much joy to us and i hope to the friends we gathered around us there on the porches overhanging the very canyon itself we had our sunday tea-parties each time carl would plead i don't have to wear a stiff collar do i and he knew that i would answer you wear anything you want which usually meant a blue soft shirt we had a little swimming tank in back for the boys and then most wonderful of all came the day when the june bug was born the daughter who was to be the very light of her adoring father's eyes her real name was alice lee mother there never really was such a baby was there he would ask ten times a day she was not born up on the hill but in ten days we were back from the hospital and out day and night through that glorious july on some one of the porches overlooking the bay and the hills and we added our adored nurse balch as a friend of the family forever. i always think of nurse balch as the person who more than any other perhaps understood to some degree just what happiness filled our lives day in and day out no one assumes anything before a trained nurse they are around too constantly for that they see the misery in homes they see what joy there is and nurse Bulch saw because she was around practically all the time for six weeks that there was nothing but joy every minute of the day in our home i do not know i can make people understand who are used to just ordinary happiness what sort of a life Carl and i led it was not just that we got along. It was an active, not a passive state. There was never a homecoming, say at lunchtime, that did not seem an event, when our curve of happiness abruptly rose. Meals were joyous occasions always, perhaps too scanty attention paid to the manners of the young, but much gurglings and tell some more, daddy, and always detailed accounts of every little happening during the last few hours of separation then there was ever the difficulty of good-byes though it meant only a few hours until supper and at supper time he would come up the front stairs i waiting for him at the top perhaps limping that was his little joke we had many little family jokes limping meant that i was to look in every pocket until i unearthed a bag of peanut candy usually he was laden with bundles provisions shoes from the cobbler a tennis racket restrung and an armful of books after greetings always the question how's my june bug and a family procession upstairs to peer over a crib at a fat gurgler and mother there never really was such a baby was there no nor such a father it was the first summer back in berkeley the year before the june bug was born when carl was teaching in summer school that we had our definite enthusiasm over labor psychology aroused will ogburn who was also teaching at summer school that year and whose lectures i attended introduced us to hart's psychology of insanity several books by freud mcdougall's social psychology etc i remember carl's seminar the following spring his last seminar at the university of california he had started with nine seminar students three years before now there were thirty-three they were all such a superior picked lot some seniors mostly graduates that he felt there was no one he could ask to stay out i visited it all term and i am sure that nowhere else on campus could quite such heated and excited discussions have been heard carl simply sitting at the head of the table directing here leading there the general subject was labor problems the students had to read one book a week, such books as Hart's Psychology of Insanity, Keller's Societal Evolution, Holt's Freudian Wish, McDougall's Social Psychology, two weeks to that, Lippmann's Preface to Politics, Veblen's Instinct of Workmanship, Wallace's Great Society, Thorndyke's Educational Psychology, Hoxie's Scientific Management, Where's The Worker and His Country?, g h parker's biology and social problems and so forth and ending as a concession to the idealists with royce's philosophy of loyalty one of the graduate students of the seminar wrote me for three years i sat in his seminar on labor problems and had we both been there ten years longer each season would have found me in his class his influence on my intellectual life was by far the most stimulating and helpful of all the men i have known but his spirit and influence will live on in the lives of those who sat at his feet and learned the seminar was too large really for intimate discussion so after a few weeks several of the boys asked carl if they could have a little sub-seminar it was a very rushed time for him but he said that if they would arrange all the details he would save them tuesday evenings so every tuesday night about a dozen boys climbed our hill to re-discuss the subject of the seminar of that afternoon and everything else under the heavens and beyond i laid out ham sandwiches or sausages or some edible dear to the male heart and coffee to be warmed and about midnight would be heard the sounds of banqueting from the kitchen Three students told me on graduation that those Tuesday nights at our house had met more intellectual stimulus than anything that ever came into their lives. One of the boys wrote me after Carl's death. When I heard that Doc was gone, one of the finest and cleanest men I have ever had the privilege of associating with, I seemed to have stopped thinking. It didn't seem possible to me, and I can remember very clearly of thinking what a rotten world this is when we have to live and lose a man like Doc i have talked to two men who were associated with him in somewhat the same manner as i was and we simply looked at one another after the first sentences and then i guess the thoughts of a man who had made so much of an impression on our minds drove coherent speech away i have had the opportunity since leaving college of experiencing something real besides college life and i can't remember during all that period of not having wondered how dr parker would handle this or that situation He was simply immense to me at all times, and if love of a man to mankind does exist, then I truthfully can say that I had that love for him. Of the letters received from students of those years, I should like to quote a passage here and there. An aviator in France writes, There was no man like him in my college life. Believe me, he has been a figure in all we do over here, we who know him, and a reason for our doing, too his loss is so great to all of us he was so fine he will always push us on to finding the truth about things that was his great spark wasn't it from a second lieutenant in france i loved carl he was far more to me than just a friend he was father brother and friend all in one he influenced as you know everything i have done since i knew him for it was his enthusiasm which has been the force which determined the direction of my work and the bottom seemed to have fallen out of my whole scheme of things when the word just came to me from one of the young officers at camp lewis when e told me about carl's illness last wednesday i resolved to go and see him the coming weekend i carried out my resolution only to find out that i could see neither him nor you this was the day before carl's death it was a great disappointment to me so i left some flowers and went away i simply could not leave seattle without seeing carl once more so i made up my mind to go out to the undertaker's the friends i was with discouraged the idea but it was too strong within me there was a void within me which could only be filled by seeing my friend once more i went out there and stood by his side for quite a while i recalled the happy days spent with him on campus i thought of his kindliness his loyalty his devotion carl parker shall always occupy a place in the recesses of my memory as a true example of nobility it was hard for me to leave but i felt much better from one of his women students always from the first day when i knew him he seemed to give me a joy of life and an inspiration to work which no other person or thing has ever given me and it is a joy and an inspiration i shall always keep I seldom come to a stumbling block in my work that I don't stop to wonder what Carl Parker would do were he solving that problem. Another letter I have chosen to quote from was written by a former student now in Paris. We could not do without him. He meant too much to us. I come now as a young friend to put myself by your side a moment and to try to share a great sorrow which is mine almost as much as it is yours for I am sure that after you there are few indeed who loved Carl as much as I. I am remembering a hundred things, the first day I found you both in the little house on Hearst Avenue, the dinners we used to have, the times I used to come on Sunday morning to find you both, and the youngsters, the day just before I graduated when Mother and I had lunch at your house, and finally that day I left you and you said, both of you, don't come back without seeing some of the cities of Europe. I'd have missed some of the cities to have come back and found you both. Some of him we can't keep. The quaint old gray twinkle, the quiet, half impudent, wholly confident poise with which he defied all comers, that inexhaustible and incorrigible fund of humor, those we lose. No use to whine, we lose it. Write it off, gulp, go on. But other things we keep, none the less. The stimulus and impetus and inspiration are not lost, and shall not be. No one has counted the youngsters he has hauled by the scruff of the neck, as often as not, out of a slough of middle-class mediocrity, and sent careering off into some welter or current of ideas and conjecture. Carl didn't know where they would end, and no more do any of the rest of us. He knew he loathed stagnation, and he stirred things and stirred people, and the end of the stirring is far from being yet known or realized. I like, too, a story one of the regents told me. He ran into a student from his hometown and asked how his work at the university was going. The boy looked at him eagerly and said, Mr. M., I've been born again, born again, those were his very words. I entered college thinking of it as a preparation for making more money when I got out. I've come across a man named Parker in the faculty, and am taking everything he gives. Now I know I'd be selling out my life to make money the goal. I know now, too, that whatever money I do make can never be at the expense of the happiness and welfare of another human being. End of chapter 10